Welcome to At Your Leisure from Weekend Edition. I'm Lynn Neary. Scott Simon will be back next week. Coming up, elections Roman style, the Smithsonian goes hunting for Obama memorabilia, and a Depression-era song comes back to haunt us. But first... A book is like a newborn baby. When it first appears, you don't know what impact it will have. At the Huntington Library in San Marino, California, a new exhibition shows off a set of books that had explosive impact, dramatically altering what we know about our world and ourselves. NPR's Joe Palka has this report about the new exhibition and the man who organized it. Lovely. Exquisite. Delightful. Those may not be adjectives that spring to mind when talking about science books, but Dan Lewis says they should be. We're trying to illustrate what is a sometimes slippery notion uh, and one that's often unexpected, to think of science and beauty hand in hand. Lewis is the senior curator of the History of Science and Technology at the Huntington Library in San Marino, California. Some of these works are beautiful for the ideas they contain. Some of them are beautiful for the illustrations they contain because they're truly stunning visually in some cases. Some of them are spectacularly uninteresting visually, but the idea behind them is really beautiful. Lewis is a tallish man with a childlike glee that bursts out as he talks about his books. When we met earlier this year, he was hard at work at preparing the exhibition Beautiful Science, Ideas That Changed the World. Uh, Let me just show you this here. And I've I've got a couple other things I want you to see. You have to see. We're in a room that could be in an underfunded public library. Mismatched furniture, books on countertops that look like they're waiting to be reshelved. Lewis reaches for a nondescript volume with a tan binding. Here you can see Newton's Principia, one of the great uh, landmarks in the history of science, printed in 1687. This is the book where Newton set down the laws of physics, laws that were the final word for more than two centuries until Einstein modified them with his theories of relativity. The pages have more texture than a modern book. The type has bitten into the heavy paper. What's great about this is this is actually uh, uh, Newton's own copy of the Principia. And Newton's, in fact, annotated a few bits in here in his own hand. So he just lined it out and wrote, uh, it shouldn't be in loco folido, it should be in non fiat in eodem plano. Exactly. Well, well said. Lewis says the books in the collection contain information beyond just the words on the page. He grabs another old volume, The Catalog of Chemical Books by William Cooper, printed in 1675. This book belonged to Newton. Lewis flips through it until he finds a page where Newton has turned down the corner. Lewis says the corner points to a particular passage Newton was interested in. And he's done this throughout. And you could see a librarian in a non-historic institution taking this and going, we must uh, straighten out these dog ears. Uh, And in doing so, you lose all the evidence in this book about what Newton thought was important in the books he read. After showing me several books, something dawned on me. Lewis was handling them with his bare hands. No gloves. That's probably the question I get asked the most, is why aren't you wearing gloves? People are audible, gasp audibly at times when I'm handling this stuff. We found that the lack of sensitivity that you suddenly get when you put on gloves is far worse than anything you might have on your hands. Well, not anything, almost anything you might have on your hands. I, I, it's always my premise that rare book librarians and archivists and doctors are the people that wash their hands more than anybody else. Quite possibly. Lewis reaches out his extremely clean hands for another treasure. Oh, let's look at the, let's look at the Appianus. Why not? It's so beautiful. Why not? Petrus Appianus started illustrating his book of star charts, the Astronomicum Caesarium, in 1532. It took him eight years to finish. Richly colored plates show constellations, and some pages have intricate moving disks for plotting star positions. It's an irresistibly beautiful book, and you want to show it to people, and you want to share this stuff, but it deserves to sit quietly in a case with fiber optic lighting open to a particular opening or two and uh, let a larger public get a good look at it. It's in the exhibition, or you can get a peek at our website, npr.org. The Appianus manuscript is exquisitely beautiful, but Lewis is drawn even more to ideas that are beautiful. And for that, he says possibly the most beautiful book ever is Darwin's Origin of Species. Lewis says it's a book that continues to shape our thinking about what it means to be human 150 years after it was published. Lewis took me up to the conservation lab where one of the library's first editions of Origin of Species was getting a few touch-ups prior to going on display. One of the ways to tell um, a first edition from a second edition is to turn to page 20 and go down... 
11 lines, and you see they've misspelled the word species. There's an extra E. It's one of the easiest ways to determine this from later editions. So if you're ever at a garage sale and you see this dull-looking binding with Darwin's name on it, pull it out and go to page 20 and see if they've misspelled the word species. And if they have, pay their price, whether it's $5 or $8 or $10. <laughs> uh, this is now a $100,000 to $200,000 book. For Lewis, owning a first edition, or at least being able to handle one, is like being present at the moment of creation the moment a new idea or new piece of art is born. He told me about a room in the Huntington Library known as The Vault. It's a small room with a gigantic bank vault door that's hardened against a direct nuclear attack. And, and after six months, you get the right to be in that room by yourself. Lewis recalled his first day alone in the vault. I'm down here, for instance, with the first two quartos of Hamlet. There are only two copies in the world. Only place, only library with the first two copies of Hamlet. I'm down here with Ben Franklin's autobiography and manuscript. Uh, I'm surrounded by untold treasures, and just to be in their presence is an honor. And my first day in the room after six months, I thought, I could die right here today, and I would die a happy man. Because he got to commune with beautiful books that changed the world. Joe Palka, NPR News. The Barack Obama memorabilia industry is in full swing, unofficially on eBay, and officially with the Guardians of American Culture, the Smithsonian Institution. The Smithsonian's Museum of American History has long been curator of presidential memorabilia, but in a few years, the Smithsonian will be opening a new museum of African-American history and culture. Both museums are on the lookout for collectibles from the campaign of the first black president. NPR's Libby Lewis reports. The Museum of African American History and Culture won't open until 2015, but history doesn't wait. So yesterday, museum curator Michelle Morese was in Falls Church, Virginia, waiting for a garage door to open. The garage belongs to Ed Gerwin, a retired lawyer who volunteered for the Obama campaign. The museum decided to preserve the contents from the campaign's Northern Virginia field office. Great, it's so neat. I'm going to take some pictures. Yeah, my annex (laughs) for our collections. They start making their way through a pile of stuff that could be for a garage sale. But context is everything in the eyes of historians. We have these banners, which I think on one side were for a grand opening of a new taco restaurant. And on the other side, people had spray painted Obama and they were placed over the interstate highway. Oh, that's beautiful. Look at that. It's like graffiti with a purpose, Morese says. She measures the Lazy Boy recliner where campaign workers crashed. They look over a coffee maker, complete with original coffee grounds. And you found the uh, children's chair. The office had an area for kids to play while their parents worked. I'm betting that little green chair makes it to the final exhibit. And so may a colorful artifact of this campaign's pursuit of diversity, the whiteboard. And as you'll note here, they're going to the Korean festival on the 26th. Right, and the Greeks um, and Falls Church. Governor's Hispanic Summit. It's interesting to think about how the African American History Museum will tell the Obama story compared to the traditional American History Museum. But there's not time to tell that story now. So I'll just ask Michelle Morese, is there a friendly competition? Very friendly. But it, you know, it is a competition. Everyone wants to have the best stuff. The two museums have had talks about the Obama story, and the American History Museum has shared items from the Democratic Convention in Denver with their colleagues. Both museums say competition isn't the point. Adding different perspectives, they say, is. Libby Lewis, NPR News, Washington. Barack Obama was voted in easily on November 4th, but a week and a half out from the election, several other elections have yet to be called. In the Minnesota Senate race, the ballots are being recounted by hand. There was a day when counting ballots by hand meant sorting through the shards of broken pots, taking care not to break them into even smaller bits. Elaine Fantham, Weekend Edition's Classics commentator, is here to talk to us about those days and the finer points of voting Roman style. She joins us from the CBC studios in Toronto. Elaine, so nice to talk with you. 
Yes, Lynn, and um, you hit the, I was going to say nail on the head. Perhaps it should be the broken pot on the head. So tell us a little bit about how uh, people voted during the Roman Empire. For instance, were the ballots secret? Until 140 before Christ, um, the Romans voted, I would call it by acclamation. What happened was you had a voting unit and you, as it were, shut its members in a kind of sheep pen and then you asked them to vote if they were voting and electing, for instance, the chief magistrates of the year, they would show, put up a show of hands and somebody would count the hands. And, of course, somebody would see mm-hmm. whether your hand went up for my friend, the good guy, or your friend, the bad guy, or his friend, the worst guy. Once the secret ballot came in, how did they go about it? Because one of the things I always like about American elections, for example, is the sort of communal feel of it, that you know neighbors get together and see each other and go to a school or go to a church to vote. I mean, where would they go to cast their secret ballots once they had secret ballots? We do know that um, the Roman secret ballot uh, was cast by walking up a kind of gangway. The idea was that if you're walking up this bridge, nobody could overlook you and see what you'd written. You walked up this gangway and you dropped your piece of broken pot with the name or initials of the guy you were voting for into an urn, and then they were counted. Huh. What did, how did you scratch those initials onto that pot, or how did you write those initials onto that pot? Well, I think it must have been desperately difficult, honestly. And certainly political parties seem to have hit on the bright notion uh, that it would be a good idea to have some ready-written ballots so that if you, as a political party, wanted everybody to elect so-and-so, you had a number of pieces of broken pot on which... Um, scribes and secretaries and people had scratched the name of so-and-so and and they would give a copy to you which you could then drop in your urn. How were you eligible to vote? What were the requirements for for somebody to be able to even vote? Oh, yes, that's a tricky thing. As you know, uh, you and I have been disqualified from voting until about 1920, is that right? Right around there. Yes, Roman women were disqualified. Non-citizens, of course, were disqualified. Citizens, um, in theory, their votes were all of equal value, but they were put through a uh, property qualification principle, and their census, their property qualification, meant that the rich folk had uh, more voting units to themselves than all the poorer, poorer folk. How much democracy? <laughs> ways ways of frustrating democracy are, of course, absolutely fascinating to find all the ingenious ways that you can frustrate democratic voting. Elaine Fantham, our classics commentator and professor emerita at Princeton University, joined us from Toronto. So good talking with you, Elaine. Bye bye. <laughs> When a first-time novelist hears his work compared to Saul Bellow, Virginia Woolf, William Faulkner, even James Joyce, it must be both gratifying and daunting. Such is the case with Salvatore Scabona, whose novel The End is a finalist for the National Book Award to be given out next week. Starting at an Italian street festival in 1953, Scabona follows his characters, a baker, a seamstress, a jeweler, and an abortionist among them, back and forth through the first half of the 20th century, a period that encompasses wars, the Depression, and the immigration experience. Salvador Scabona joins us now from East Ham, Massachusetts, on Cape Cod. Hi, Salvador. Good to have you with us. Hi. Good morning, Lynn. Well, I, I just have to start by asking you what it is like for you to be mentioned in the same breath as as literary giants like Joyce and, and Faulkner. <laughs> oh, well, it's a little silly, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, those are some of the people that I uh, that I love, but I certainly wasn't setting out to write anything that was comparable to what they're they're doing. I'm just trying to write. Um, it's just trying to write my book, you know. But I think that you are you are what you eat as a writer, so. It's pretty sweet, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty sweet. Well, well, the book begins and then ultimately returns to one day, August 15th, 1953, okay. at an Italian street festival in a city in Ohio. And I wanted you to, uh, to read a description of that event that begins, It Was a Neighborhood. 
Sure. It was a neighborhood outside of which outsiders stayed, except for once a year, on the 15th of August, when they descended in their tens of thousands. And there were the carny games where you paid a nickel to throw a softball at a pyramid of soup cans in the hope of winning a salami sandwich. In the central event, the Virgin was paraded out of the church and through the streets by men in white robes accompanied by torchbearers who until recently had covered their heads with pointed white hoods. However, the police, careful to prevent miscommunications and slanders, forbade them to wear the hoods anymore. Tell me about that neighborhood and, and why you chose it and, and this festival as a, as a kind of focal point for your book. Mm-hmm. At first, I was just writing about um, people. I didn't put them any in any particular time or place, and slowly they sort of acquired a, a setting. And then over time, it turned into uh, a neighborhood very much like the neighborhood that my grandparents would have grown up in in Cleveland in the uh, during the Depression. But in my in my research, I discovered that the, one particular parish in Cleveland in which. Uh, during a street carnival, a group of African Americans who had mo- recently moved into the neighborhood joined in uh, a religious procession, thinking that it was a party, and started to dance behind the band. And the priest and the parishioners involved in the procession immediately shut the whole thing down because they thought that it was a sort of aggressive piece of blasphemy. But I think that they were kind of complicit in that misunderstanding, and I wanted to explore that from the, from the street level. It's interesting because you said when you first started writing, uh, the characters weren't of a specific place necessarily, and yet in the end these characters seem so grounded in this culture of uh, Italian-Americans in the Middle West at that time. I think of them as people first, and their Italianness is really, um, to me, is a very incidental part of who they are, although almost all the characters are immigrants from Italy. I was just describing what was in my imagination in a sort of a slow, methodical way and allowing my unconscious to to fill things in. And it, as it turned out, I think, in retrospect, I think um, I said it in the place and time that I said it in because I admired my grandparents so much. And I had, I had a very close relationship with all four of them. They were all alive when I started writing the book. Do you think, too, as a writer, that if you if you do ground your characters in a world that you understand just by virtue of having experienced it on some level yourself, does that give you a kind of freedom then? To- yeah, exactly. I understood it secondhand. It's not a place that I know myself from my own experience because of the time difference. But I think that's exactly right, that in some way the idea was to get close enough to the thing that I didn't have to be making a whole lot of invented conscious decisions, and I could allow certain details to just sort of, you know, just come up at the moment that the story requires them. Now, one of your characters is an abortionist. Uh, This is at a time when abortion is illegal. What did you want to explore through that character? Why did you choose to write about that? I think that's a great, interesting example of um, the kind of thing I was talking about, because um, this is a woman who's relatively well-off and her, she had a personality, she had a soul to my mind, and then events started circulating around the need for an abortionist in the book, and suddenly I had the answer to where her income came from. So the idea, the issue of abortion and the conflict and the moral ambiguity of abortion kind of arose spontaneously out of the soil of the book. You know, to go back to what I was saying at the beginning about comparisons to Joyce Faulkner or Wolf, those kinds of writers, I think those are being made because this novel doesn't follow a completely linear kind of structure. And I read that music influenced the structure, and I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, you know, uh, I had a little bit of education in music while I was in college, and you often see in a Bach partita, for example, a short theme introduced in a very simple way at the beginning. And then the thing becomes becomes more and more and more complicated, but you still have the sort of center theme that keeps getting repeated and repeated. Until you finally come back to an unambiguous repetition of the melody. And I think in some ways that's that's sort of the structure of the end, that you see this event the August 15th, 1953, from one person's point of view. And then the thing goes backward and picks up six or seven other characters from the early parts of the book and brings them back toward this melody to this day. 
and it becomes more symphonic as opposed to just melodic by the end. And one other thing, I, I understand that you were taught by Marilyn Robinson, the writer Marilyn I was, Robinson. I was. And she is also up for a National Book Award she for her is. novel, Home. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're surprised to find yourself in that position? Um, I, I'm flabbergasted. I mean, as a as a teacher and as a, especially as a writer, she's just been an enormous inspiration. So I, I pale to think what I'll have to say to her when I have to see her next week. <laughs> Well, good luck with the National Book Awards. Well, thank you so much, Lynn. Salvatore Scabona is the author of The End and a finalist for the National Book Award. Albuquerque is no different from any other American city in terms of its religious life. You've got churches, synagogues, a couple of Unitarian congregations, and a mosque. But an abandoned gas station along Old Route 66 is the unlikely home of Albuquerque's newest house of worship. And it's one that you won't find anywhere else. Bridget McCarthy reports from Albuquerque. Felix Worman isn't a rabbi, priest, or preacher. He plays the cello. One of the things you do as a professional classical musician is you play, quote-unquote, church jobs. And I always felt that, isn't this wonderful? All this music and all this, this collection of people in this beautiful room and everything. But there was something lacking. He didn't feel at home in church because he's not religious. But he also felt there was something missing in the formal concert halls where he performs. Worman is a member of the New Mexico Symphony Orchestra. Before that, he studied with the legendary British cellist Jacqueline Dupre, toured with Andrew Lloyd Webber, and performed with Chicago's Lyric Opera Orchestra. All the time I was doing all of those things, I was searching for a form of entertainment that went beyond entertainment and went beyond a concert. And last February, he created it. It's sort of like a variety show with poetry readings, group singing, silence, and music. But he's trying to make it more than that, a community, a spiritual place, like a church for people who don't go to church. He calls it the Church of Beethoven. Really, the idea is to find spirituality through culture, through the cultural gifts that so many people have suffered for and created over so many generations. There's so much information there that's useful. It's Sunday morning and a crowd is gathering at the filling station, an old gas station that's been converted into a theater. It's in one of Albuquerque's oldest neighborhoods, surrounded by small brown adobe houses, a few blocks from the hulking shell of the old Santa Fe rail yards. Coffee is a major part of the liturgy here. Good coffee. Two cheerful baristas serve everyone free espresso in brightly colored ceramic cups. Hey there. How are you doing? Good, how are you? Excellent. What can we make for you? Vanilla latte? Coming up, vanilla latte. Laura Motter and her husband Nathaniel rode here on their tandem bike. They've been attending faithfully since last spring. The first time I came, I just heard about it from a friend of mine who is uh, a poet who reads here sometimes, and just kind of blown away by what you can hear in a gas station in Albuquerque. Hello. Thanks for coming, everybody. Another perfect amount of people. Yep. We got every chair full. The audience sits on plain wooden risers. The cement floor has been scrubbed clean of oil stains, but the exposed brick and cinder block walls still look as if they were blackened by exhaust. Worman doesn't always program classical music, but this morning the church lives up to its name with a Beethoven string quartet. His music, I think, is really the most important reason why I selected him as the figurehead, because he really took a lot of chances with his music in terms of the emotional content of it. He just doesn't give you any notion of what's coming. And then all of a sudden, he's in a different mood altogether. I just think that that's just so human. Worman also points out that unlike Bach, Beethoven didn't write that much church music. In fact, he rarely, if ever, went to church. He poured all that spirituality that he couldn't find a place for it within the traditional church, he poured it in, straight into his, his art. And that's what most of the great creators, it seems, did. And so I could just go there and grab that incredible crystallized piece of beauty and present it to people.
Dwayne Longenbaugh has a subscription to the symphony, but he comes to the Church of Beethoven for a different musical experience. You're sitting three feet from the musician, and you can actually feel the music instead of just hearing it. The lower notes of the music actually reverberate in your chest. Felix Werman refuses to charge admission because churches don't do that. But like churches, he has expenses to cover, so he asks for donations. Sometimes he comes out ahead, sometimes he doesn't. But in just nine months, he has built a devoted Sunday morning following and a community. Werman is determined to see his church survive and prosper. I have struggled so long in the arts. It's like you're just, you're crying in the wilderness. You're saying, well, look at all this incredible music that really isn't getting out there to the extent that it should. And my goal is to disseminate all of this wonderful art because people don't know that much about it. I know that there's an audience for it. Felix Roman doesn't want the Church of Beethoven to grow into a megachurch. He thinks that would destroy the intimacy that makes it meaningful. But he'd like the idea to get big and spread, with churches of Bach, Schubert, Mahler, and Bernstein sprouting up. For NPR News, I'm Bridget McCarthy in Albuquerque. It's one thing to be out of work, quite another to be without a place to sleep. NPR's Noah Adams went to Dayton, Ohio to check out a job retraining center and ended up spending time with some homeless people across the river. Here's a page from his reporter's notebook. I was in the parking lot at the job center. It was a warm day, and I looked across and I could see people just sitting out there in the sun right on the riverbank. It looked inviting, and you know everybody's got a story. So I drove across the bridge and then realized they were staying at the homeless shelter nearby. I walked up and talked with Terry Goodwin, who, as it turned out, had stopped in the job center that morning. He wanted to tease me a little bit. They told me, if you come by here and you had your microphone out and you turned it on and I talked to you, you'd probably pull your wallet out and give me a Franklin. Now, is that true or not? Huh? <laughs> I mean, I'm being serious. I mean, you don't want to let down my compadres because they can be rough after a couple of beers. <laughs> a Franklin, Terry Goodwin had to explain to me, is a $100 bill. And I had to explain to him that I couldn't pay for an interview. Anyway, Goodwin came to Dayton for a friend's funeral His truck broke. He says the job center promised to bring him money in the morning and he'd go home to Arizona. He's an electrician, says there's no work in Dayton. Kelly Rogge is also staying at the shelter. She says she's been in management and sales. Her last job, she worked at a Rite Aid drugstore, but now has no safe way to get there. My car died and uh, transportation was on foot and I had rocks thrown on me. I spit on twice and kind of almost, I would say almost a sexual assault. 
they took my underclothing and asked me to get dressed and walk home slowly and do not call the police. Who, who did this? They told me to look down. I have no clue. This was the last Indian summer day along the Great Miami River in Dayton, and it was the sunshine that made me think of John Patterson. Right here on this riverbank, more than a century ago, Patterson started the National Cash Register Company, which became NCR. His company's success, in part, was because he believed his workers should have sunlight in the factory and clean air and a hot company lunch. NCR, of course, no longer offers a free lunch. The company still has headquarters here, close to the river. Back in its manufacturing heyday around 1960, NCR had about 30,000 people on the local payroll. Now, that's down to 1,300. Those numbers make you say, well, that's Dayton these days. The legendary names in U.S. bicycle manufacturing are just about gone. Huffy, Columbia, Murray, and Schwinn are either out of the bicycle business or have moved overseas. Yet in a factory in a residential section of Queens, New York, there's a bike maker that's been around for more than a century, but you've probably never heard of them. Workspin Cycles is the oldest existing bicycle manufacturer in this country, and they specialize in the workhorses of the industry. NPR's Peter Breslow paid them a visit. Next time you're in New York or some other big city and you buy a hot dog from a street vendor or see a pizza delivery guy riding by, check out their wheels. Chances are they're pedaling or pushing a worksman. Although the name may be tough to read, some of these battered specialty bikes are 20, 30, or even 40 years old. A lot of our cycles and really the basis of our business is making industrial grade bikes and trikes. Wayne Sosen is president of Worksman and today he's showing off some bright orange, yellow, and blue tricycles used for factory work. They run around $1,200 and provide an emissions-free alternative to golf carts and forklifts. These are bicycles and tricycles that are used to move personnel at large facilities. Workers need a good way to get around. They use Worksman cycles to do that, so a lot of them want the safety colors, safety orange, safety yellow. Worksman started out as a downtown Manhattan toy store founded by Russian immigrant Morris Worksman. Mr. Worksman sold bikes in his shop, and he liked to tinker. He made specialty gearing for Harley-Davidson and created vending carts for local merchants. One day, opportunity came ringing. Back in the 1930s, this little company called Worksman Cycles was approached by a newly formed company that nobody had heard of called Good Humor Ice Cream. And the Good Humor Ice Cream Company wanted to, had a vision of doing this through a series of ice cream vending tricycles. And they went to Schwinn and Schwinn said, I don't really think that's something we can do, but there's a small company in New York, they could do this for you. They already make these sort of things. For the next 40 years, Worksman continued to produce good humor carts. Along the way, they've added the factory tricycles, adult trikes for seniors, some heavy-duty recreational cruiser bikes, four-wheelers you might see commandeered by tourists on the boardwalk in Atlantic City, and dual-team trikes, where two riders sit side-by-side side and pedal independently. Perfect for an able-bodied person accompanying someone who can't ride on their own. On any given day, we could speak to the head of purchasing of General Motors, Ford, Pratt & Whitney, Boeing, Exxon, or we could talk to Tony's Pizzeria who needs one delivery bike and everything in between that you could imagine. Wayne Sosen is sprightly with significant teeth and a penchant for the word green, which he uses to describe not only his bikes, but also the new rooftop solar panels supplying 25% of the manufacturer's electricity. He came to Worksman when he felt his ideas weren't being taken seriously enough at a larger company. That was back in 1979. Quite a number of Worksman's 65 employees have been here for decades. Errol Barrett learned his welding craft in Jamaica. He's just celebrated his 30th anniversary with Worksman. So do you ever see these bikes out on the street? I see these back in Jamaica. I go to Jamaica on vacation and there was a restaurant, I was walking out of a restaurant, a very exclusive restaurant, and there was a worksman. I said to my, I said to my wife, that's a worksman bike. She said, how oh, you know? I said, I made it. <laughs> There's no other bike like that in the world. 
How can you tell a workman bike? It's where I was standing. It's, it's more like a Humvee compared to a car. These bike, I I must have made over a hundred thousand over the years. A hundred thousand? Yeah, there are more. Some of these cycles can weigh 50 or even 100 pounds, so they won't match up well against your 19-pound carbon fiber Trek or Specialized. Then again, Worksman bicycles are just about indestructible. The company is still supplying replacement parts for bikes they sold back in the 1960s. According to Wayne Sosen, over the last 15 to 20 years, domestic production of American bicycles has dropped from 10 million a year to less than half a million. And while Worksman still fabricates its bikes in this country, many of the companies that supply their components, like rims, spokes, and brakes, have moved overseas. Business is booming at Worksman. The company won't reveal how many bikes it sells annually, but Sosin says sales are up 10% from last year. He says manufacturers are looking to reduce fuel costs and maybe give employees a chance to work out a bit as they haul engine blocks across the factory floor. Not long ago, their hand-built three-wheeler got a boost when actor Edie Falco ordered one with a metal basket mounted on the back for carting her dog around. And then she showed it off on The Ellen DeGeneres Show. Worksman is still pretty much a family operation. CEO Jeff Mishkin is the husband of founder Morris Worksman's granddaughter. And there are lots of familial relationships among the factory workers, too. Fathers and sons and cousins sort rivets and true wheels side by side. Roberto Combe, who supervises painting, has a brother in the assembly department. Today, Combe, in his navy t-shirt sporting the three-wheeled Worksman logo, is spraying cobalt blue over a bike dangling from a hook in front of him. Almost 20 years ago, he started out in the tire department. And I didn't know nothing about bicycles that much, so I used to change inner tubes in my, in my garage. I thought I could do tires. Then they moved me up here, and then I just got the hang of it. Over here, we do everything handmade that, that we got to make it perfect because, you know, it's, it's us. We're doing it, you know what I'm saying? Over here, we take a little time, but when you get a, you get a good cycle, it feels good. You know what I'm saying? I did that. I painted that bike. <laughs> then, like a master chef, Roberto Combe prepares to complete his metallic creation, baking his freshly painted bike in an industrial oven. A half hour at 375 degrees. Peter Breslow, NPR News. It's Sing Along Time on Weekend Edition. You know the melody, but we bet you don't know these lyrics. I could go on crying big blue tears. All right, I'm going to stop. But does anything come to mind? Strange, because NPR special correspondent Susan Stamberg says with different lyrics, the old song is being sung again these days with a small, scared shiver of nostalgia. It was the anthem of the Great Depression, Brother Can You Spare a Dime, tuned by Jay Gorney, lyrics by E.Y. Yip Harburg. Jay Gorney learned the melody at his mother's knee. Harburg got rid of the big blue tears, although he was a man who loved colors. Yip Harburg wrote Over the Rainbow. But instead, he wrote in railroads and dimes for this one. Together, in 1932, they created a classic which has 21st century reverberations. Once I built a railroad, made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Rudy Valley had a big hit with the song. Lots of singers recorded it over the years. Why? What makes it great? With me at the piano in NPR's Studio 4A is composer, conductor, and classical music missionary Rob Capello, who does a series called What Makes It Great for Public Radio's performance today. Hi, Rob. Hi. So what's the answer? What does make it great? Well, you know, the first thing that's surprising is it doesn't start in a major key like most Broadway songs but appropriate to the Depression in a minor key. That's our first idea, and what's great is it goes from a C all the way up to a C with all the energy that made America's railroads and a great syncopation. The second idea of the piece is another syncopation, what I call long, short, long, for made it run. We then copy that lower for made it race and finish the first half against time. Now already there's a wonderful blending of images, very concrete, once I built a railroad I made it run, but then a metaphor, 
made it race against time. Mm -hmm. And now as we're reminiscing, we're actually quite happy about this moment in time before the depression when we were building railroads and we actually get to a major key here. But then heartbreakingly under the word time, we change to minor to set up the whole second half. Now it's no longer there. We're remembering it back in the good old days. Now we come back to that opening rhythm. Once I built a railroad, but now it has lost all its energy. Now it's wistful. Once I built a railroad, we take our long, short, long idea, which has been here, down here, now to the lowest place of all, for now it's done. Now it's done the railroad, but also now it's done the good days in America, pre-depression. And then the punchline is set up beautifully, both musically and lyrically. First, lyrically, it's the entire history of the depression in a single phrase. Brother, can you spare a dime? Utterly economical. It's not, now it's done, I've lost my family, I don't have my home. It's just, now it's done, and in one phrase, brother, can you spare a dime? I'm talking to you. Musically, it's been set up from the very beginning in a subtle, fantastic way. We've gradually gone down this scale. Though you don't realize it. So we've gone from depression to hope. Now we go here. Made it run lower. Made it race against time. Still lower. Once. Now. Back to, to depression. Through its very structure and the, the key that it's written. And what is the key? The key is in C minor. Uh-huh. Right. Minor always means sad. It means it? sad, and interestingly, the few Broadway songs that are in minor usually end in major with comfort, happy ending, but not this one. Here, here are the lyrics that Harburg wrote for the bridge, the middle section of this song. Once in khaki suits, gee, we looked swell, full of that Yankee doodly dum. <laughs> Half a million boots went slogging through hell, and I was the kid with the drum. So that's a real shift of tone, too. But again, it's looking back, but not quite so peppy. Once in khaki suits, gee, we looked swell, full of that Yankee doodle dum. Half a million boots went slogging through hell, and I was the kid with a drum. Right, and in fact, you get the rhythm of the march right here to set up the bridge, and already we realize the whole bridge is marching in World War I, and suddenly the music tells us what the words don't. The words themselves, as you read them, sound almost peppy. Once in khaki suits, gee, we looks twelve. But in fact, the music is not only marching, but listen to these harmonies under gee, we looked swell. It's anything but swell in the music, full of that Yankee doodle-dee-dum, and we're marching half a million boots as the words get more and more angry, slogging through hell. Now, it finally becomes personal. It's no longer an abstract I. I'm the kid with the drum. Now it's really about me. Higher and higher, the highest note in the song so far. And now we come to the true genius of the song. Say, don't you remember they called me Al? It was Al all the time. Hey, don't you remember? I'm your pal, buddy, can you spare a dime? So the amazing thing is that we come back to the opening, and in all Broadway songs, we would repeat the beginning. But here, it's higher. He's so angry that it's up here. It's say, don't you remember? The highest note of the piece so far. Then we start to copy just like the first verse, but now it's personal. I'm not only the kid with the drum, I'm Al. They called me Al. It was Al all the time. The melody's exactly the same as the first time. We come again. Say, don't you remember? But here's the brilliant stroke. I'm your pal, buddy. Can you spare a dime? Instead of staying down low like we did the first time, I'm your pal. It's up a whole octave. It's, I'm your pal. We're literally screaming at you. And then instead of finishing with weary resignation from the depression down here, buddy, can you spare a dime? It's an octave higher. It's here. Buddy with a retard and a fortissimo. So instead of finishing down low, we are now up high. We've gone from depression to hope in the first verse, and we finish with anger. And although the first two times were always brother, can you spare a dime, a kind of harmless brotherhood of man, it finishes with 
buddy can you spare a dime. We don't finish with any happy endings, with any life as a bowl of cherries. We're finishing with the anger of the two socialist creators, Gorney and Harburg, always feeling the time immemorial complaint that the working man doesn't get the rewards. In the middle of the Depression in 1932, when no one was saying this out loud, they had the courage to say it on Broadway. And uh, the people who heard it then and really heard it all through the ages never forgot it. And my best example of this comes from NPR's own Rudy Valley. Daniel Shore, our senior news analyst, sang this song on the air once, a cappella. Once I built a railroad, made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower to the sun, brick and mortar and lime. Once I built a tower, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once in khaki suits, gee, we look swell, filled with that Yankee doodly-um. Half a million boots went slugging through hell, and I was the kid with a drum. Say, don't you remember, they called me Al. It was Al all the time. Say, don't you remember, I'm your pal. Brother, can you spare a dime? NPR's Daniel Shore. And Rob Capello, listening to that song again, uh, as people have remembered it since the 1930s, with a really special resonance for today. The more things change, the <laughs> more they stay the same. You know, and any time you tell such a powerful, universal story in the particular, it's always going to be relevant. And any time you have the courage to speak truth to the power, it will always sound contemporary. Thanks very much. The song is Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? Music by Jay Gorney, lyrics by Yip Harburg, analysis by composer-conductor Rob Capello. A tune for our times. I'm Susan Stamberg, NPR News. Thank you.
Thank you. 